Welcome to GOLA. I'm Katie Parla, a Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and cookbook author. And I'm Danielle Caligari, assistant professor of Italian at Dartmouth College and a certified specialist of wine. Hi, Danielle. What is up? Katie, I'm so excited because we are officially starting the recording of our in-studio sessions for season four of GOLA, which in some ways is season one. This is very medieval, actually. Three plus one. There's a whole numerology here we can get into. Okay. I think we should save that for later probably because um, we have a lot to talk about and we're going to start our new season, our new series of episodes in studio by talking about what we've been doing outside of the studio. That's right. And before we jump into everything, we just want to give a special shout out to all of our patrons and generally our supporters who reach out, tell us how much they're enjoying the show, request special episodes, all those great things. Um, and uh, extra special shout out to our Gyotti, uh, including Fiorella of Rochester, Gabriel Virginia of New York City, <laughs> Fiona Fine. Yes. We have a new and wonderful supporter who just joined. We actually have uh, several people who have been jumping on. By the time this drops, we will need to add a new roster of thank yous, and we will do that. In fact, I think we'll probably submit a totally separate episode of just shout-outs and love for our fans. But uh, we'll add our friends at Semolina Artisanal Pasta in Pasadena and at Mazzulo Pizzeria in Sacramento. Uh, I'm covering the West Coast and you're covering the East Coast, which is sort of interesting we keep we've kept that up now so (laughs) we'll see what that means later i like it uh a reminder though before we get into our conversation and before later we just uh shower love onto all of our fans whatever level of patronage they're supporting us with to check out that Patreon site because at patreon.com backslash golapod not only can you throw money at us that supports this uh recording that you're listening to at this very moment, but also find out about all kinds of special access, early um, availability, and ideally soon more and more new fresh content that will be available only to patrons. So uh, if you're not already a patron, jump on, get involved because uh, so many of you are supporting us in some way already. And if you move over to Patreon, to the Patreon site, you'll find that you get much more for much more bang for your buck, not just all the fun stuff on Gola that you're listening to, but also at, uh, discounts on some of the collaborations we're working on, uh, information from us in advance, and much easier uh, communication with us directly as well, which we're so happy to provide. Yeah. Speaking of so happy to provide, I have to thank you for delivering a delicious pastry to me (laughs) on a morning that if I were in your shoes, I would have still been in the process of sleeping for six more hours. Now, we are together in a studio in Rome because Danielle is spending the summer preparing for, among other things, her forthcoming uh, not a semester. What do you guys do at Dartmouth? We call them quarters. Quarter abroad mm-hmm. with her students in Rome. And she landed six hours later. She was in a Fiat Cinquecento <laughs> with was. me. Very much south, was. <laughs> but never the one to show up empty handed to a chauffeured car. 
she brought some maritozzi from Cafe Rocholi, those sort of brioche-like whipped cream-filled sweets, a few others as well. And we dined on flaky pastry as we headed to the deep south. And in a mere eight and a half hours, <laughs> we were in Chiro. So before when we were doing the shout-outs, you yeah. did the west coast, I did the east coast. Yeah. We were going to the south coast. Yeah, this is very much the south coast. This was, I, I could not have had a more thrilling and overwhelming transition from no travel or limited travel to extreme travel because we went from being locked down, moving around a little bit. I had done some domestic traveling. You had finally made the the leap across the pond and we're here. Um, But again, we were still kind of in a space of of relatively restricted movements. And then I flew from San Francisco through Atlanta to Rome on a COVID-tested flight, arrived in Rome, uh, talked to Katie. Katie said, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, what day is this? She said, I'll be at your house at eight o'clock in the morning. I said, oh my God. And then uh, again, a few more hours later, we are in Chiro, one of the most spectacular, but also challenging places to travel in Italy, the Ionian coast, the northern, northeastern central Ionian coast of uh, the Calabrian peninsula, the the toe of the boot of of Italy. And um, I mean, besides the fact that that's literally going halfway around the world, it's also a transition of um, of, of huge magnitude when it comes to the kind of cultural social level, right? We get to this place and what makes Chiro so special and so weird? I mean, Chiro is on, well, Chiro Marina is on the sea. Um, It is a place where Greeks settled thousands of years ago. Um, But what you don't necessarily get the sense of are all of the the hidden cultural factors of this place. Calabria is a huge region, and some areas are more opaque than others culturally. Mm. So, you know, we drove through Lazio, through Campania, into Calabria, and by the time we get to Chiro, we've passed through thousands of dialects. Oh, Ooh, yeah, yeah. Also, we drove through Basilicata. Yeah, we did. We did. <laughs> we gave Basilicata a quick, a quick hello on our way. Basilicata is beautiful from that angle, for sure. I love I mean, it. It's pretty magnificent. Yeah. I love it. But highly, re- highly, yeah. highly recommend a pit stop at uh, the, the <laughs> at Grill. Not a yeah. girl on the, on the border of Campania and Basilicata. It's I got like a pictures. mountain in the background. Yeah, it's, crazy. it's really great. <laughs> so, you know, we get to Chiro, which is known, I would say, internationally for its red wines with grippy tannins uh, made from the Galliopo grape. Um, If if, if it's known, yeah. yeah. If it's known at all. Um, I think Avita, which is uh, in Chiro, is a pretty well-known low-intervention winemaker. They do a great rosato from Galliopo. They do a red um, and or maybe a couple reds from Galliopo. And so that's maybe how people would know Chiro. Otherwise... Well, conventional wines, Librandi is the Mm. one that you're going to see. Librandi has a lot of distribution in the U.S. It went from zero to 60 real fast. I would say, God, maybe within the last five to seven years, it went from, you know, almost no Calabrian wines on the American market to Librandi being widely available um, in almost any place. I mean, I think places like Whole Foods and and Safeway and stuff carry them now. 
apart from our desire to uh, point our listeners towards smaller production and lower intervention and more sustainable operations, um, I think Librandi was the a point of entry. And so there's um, a positive, you know, side to the ability to at least experience something that you've never had before, like Galliopo, which was a grape that was um, almost unknown in, entirely in the U.S. And, and even very little known within Italy in some ways. Um, but now um, it's, I think, high time to move past that regardless because there are plenty of producers at the um, middle to to uh, lower uh, range of the spectrum in terms of quantity of production and much higher in terms of the quality of production. And we were going for a next level deep dive in this case. Yeah, we were doing the opposite of Librandi. We uh, <laughs> met our friend John the founder of Amunini Wines, a New York-based importer, to visit Minot, uh, a really, really small producer. Um, 5,000 bottles? I I think he would probably Six. have to update us a la minuto, like in a sense, right? Because he is such a small, it's such a small production and it is literally him and, um, and a friend uh, working together, uh, not not just on any one aspect, but on the entire operation, top to bottom. So, um, they're uh, each each vintage is changing a little bit in terms of what they can produce, what they will produce, the quantity and the style of things, because they're responding entirely in the moment to what the availability is, how their wines are evolving, and uh, what the market makes uh, possible yeah. for them, right? Speaking of John, you know, finding them and, and bringing them to New York, um, that's, you know, this massive shift for them as well, right? Yeah. yeah. So Nicola Finotto and Michele Vitale started making wine under the Menat label in San Nicola dell'Alto, just outside of Chiro, in 2018. Yeah. Uh, by the way, San Nicola dell'Alto is one of the many Calabrian villages that claims Arbresh origins. So these are essentially people from what is today Albania who escaped persecution by the Ottomans in the 15th century and settled in Molise, Sicily, Calabria, and elsewhere, and still have a dialect and culture that is not assimilated into the Calabrian Sicilian, etc. culture. Really distinct. The signage is bilingual. So when you go to like the city hall, which is right near where Minot produces the wine, um, you see first the uh, Albanian dialect from the 15th century and then municipio. I guess it's not really city hall. It's a municipality building, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You get the picture. It's it is wild, and it's an I think um, one of the reasons we were so excited to make this particular trip together was because we talk about liminal spaces, about these kinds of um, uh, moments of intersection within Italy that remind us of the richness and depth and diversity of culture that has always been here, that has anachronistically been uh, attempted to be erased or or at least smoothed out in some way, and the um, the early modern Albanian uh, rooted communities in this area of Calabria are um, 
so outside of the sphere of what Italy transmits to the rest of the world as part of its hegemonic image, right? Um, But they're incredible. I mean, they're beautiful. They have magnificent views in every direction wherever you are because you're in these hilltop, um, you know, late medieval, early modern towns. Um, You are... Uh, filled with, you know, infused with this ancient culture that goes back to the Greeks even even before that, and Mm -hmm. then also is enriched with these other um, influxes of different populations that bring all different kinds of Mediterranean culture together. Absolutely. And to give you a sense of what it feels like to be in San Nicola dell'Alto, first I would have to put you in a car with no shocks for (laughs) 25 minutes while we take a very steep <laughs> switchback road yeah. up from sea level where yeah. vines and olive trees grow right on the Ionian Sea. Um, also, this always is like so shocking to me. The like, you go from like hyper development along the sea to like just no development, just yeah. like chickpeas growing on like, the water. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, and so once you leave the sea behind you and you start um, uh, managing your way up delicately, into places like San Nicola dell'Alto, you see all of these mountains start to reveal themselves. And those are part of the Sila mountain chain, which is one of the three sort of major topographical features of Calabria. Give an idea of the toe of the boot in your brain. Um, the Polino National Park and the mountains associated with it are the first that you encounter once you cross the, the Basilicata border, uh, rather Campania border. And then you head into uh, the Sila, and then Aspromonte is the one that is closest to Sicily, close to the sort of toenails. Ill. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately regret you saying I know, that. No, <laughs> I apologize. So, you know, how did two guys, Nicola and Michele from Milan, end up in a place that really feels remote and like removed oh, yeah. from the world? Well, Michele um, is the grandson of a former great grower. Um, his name also Michele Vitale. And so Michele's grandfather passed away and Michele inherited the land, the vineyards, um, a bunch of properties, and uh, invited his buddy Nicola, who had a lot of um, alcohol importation and distribution experience because he had uh, been working in the Georgian wine world, country, not state. Um, And so they start to collaborate together and they are devoted to making wines in really interesting vessels. Cavavri from Georgia and Tinejas from Spain, both terracotta vessels um, in uh, in their practice. They're uh, buried in the ground. So the opening of the terracotta vessel is at sort of your foot level. And these are selected for a number of reasons. The micro-oxygenation that happens, the sort of slow breathing through the material, and then also to evoke all sorts of flavors and aromas and to treat the the wine in a certain way to have a specific outcome. Can you comment a little bit on the use of terracotta jugs and why it makes sense in this part of Italy? Yeah, well, so I think one thing is to also that we could start with is imagining the process a little bit, because if you haven't visited a place like this, it is hard to understand. Most people, even if they're not terribly into wine uh, or, you know, haven't done a lot of vineyard visits, 
are familiar at least with the idea of the barrel aging system um, or the um, steel or cement tanks maybe that you see. They'll get really large vessels that are used for fermentation and then the movement over to smaller barrel or barrique or other uh, wood vessels for aging and, uh, and, and that impart flavor in some way. Those are the kinds of generic images you'll see almost anywhere in the world. There are some wineries working in that style and uh, you will have encountered them at least in you know visuals from uh, other contexts. In this case, what you're looking at is a setup that's extremely different, as Katie described. Huge vessels, vessels that are so big that even people larger than me can jump inside of them. Sometimes it depends on just how big. And in this in this case, Nicola is using tools, not his full body. But um, I'm sure Katie, you've seen ones where mm-hmm. people just jump inside to do their cleaning yep. and stuff like that. So these are massive, massive vessels that go under the ground. And uh, and then within them, in the case of Nicola and Michele's uh, winemaking practice, are really just getting the fruit thrown in in some, you know, I don't want to make it sound um, uh, lacking in care or attention, but it, unlike in other wineries uh, where you will have the harvest and then maybe have the grapes destemmed, uh, have uh, pieces of of the uh, whole plant removed in some way, have the fruit um, uh, either channeled in some way or separated, et cetera, et cetera. No, that's not going to be happening here. They're going to be taking the clusters as they have them and putting them into these vessels and then letting nature take its course. And right, it's actually the gravity of right. the grapes, the weight of the grapes right. sitting on top of other grapes that does this really soft press. So it's called free run. Uh, yeah, well, and then it's also, I mean, that's just like the the funny thing is that, of course, in a, a more conventional, again, scare quotes all over the place because mm. people use these terms really haphazardly and they don't always mean the same thing. But in a uh, a, a, a winery today in a more, uh, in like a typical developed wine region, California, we can use as an example, when people harvest, they're actually struggling against that process, right? So they pull their grapes and they're running or most of the time driving super fast with the fruit piled in crates in the back of a small truck or other vehicle to get it to where they want to do the press because the weight of the grapes, as Katie, you're mentioning, is pressing each uh, pile of fruit is adding more weight and the uh, grapes at the bottom are getting that weight on top. They're starting to lose their juice. The juice starts to run out, free run, as you would call it, uh, sanguinez, uh, the um, different kinds of uh, techniques that are sometimes used on purpose, sometimes something that you're trying to avoid, are going to then... uh, start to automatically ferment because there's yeast all over the place, right? And in, again, a more conventional winery, there is a move to pull that fruit, separate it, uh, put it into a press, eliminate any wild or uncultivated yeast and inoculate with a chosen yeast. This is not what we're looking at when we're talking about Minot's wines. And it's usually, I would say, almost without exception, all the wine that Katie and I uh, talk about here is uh, done with with wild yeast cultivars. So mm-hmm. there's, uh, and I would say that's that's more or less the rule. Even even if I am uh, more patient with larger scale and more conventional wines than you are, most of the wines 
that I talk about, even if they're more polished versions of things, or even if they produce more, are still mostly using wild yeast now, because I think there's been a move toward that in general. Inoculated yeast is not necessarily bringing more to the table, and it's actually just such a hassle to work with um, for producers who are trying to go for an expressive style that really brings the territory to the forefront. Um, That fruit is all going into... In, in this case, these massive vessels now. So we have the process of fermentation happening totally naturally. Now, we're looking at a place that, I mean, this was very peculiar, even for me. I've, I've been to a, a series of vineyards that used a style. So I, um, the, some of the setup, I, I didn't expect to be surprised by anything really. But there's, I mean, part of the thing that's so interesting is that we visited both the vineyard and their fermenting um you know, building. Yeah, exactly. But in the sense that I I separated or that I I hesitate to call it that because it's in the middle of the town. It's set up so that one side is out looking over the mountain and the other side, you can go get a coffee at the bar, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's like a railroad style situation. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) There's also like someone's garden in the back. It's yeah, cool. exactly. Right. You know, they, um, so that's all, you know, it's, it's super integrated. So um, it's so kind of organic in the um, in the very literal sense of the word. Um, and then, Katie, you're asking, you know, why are we using vessels like this here? What that what's that is going to do? Well, you mentioned we're close to the sea, right? So you have uh, a composite soil that's going to be uh, really uh, normally would be hard to work with at the level of the grapes themselves already. So they're already getting fruit that's like, you know, I think in my experience of what we tasted, much wackier and more exciting mm-hmm. than than you might expect. Composite soil meaning like sand and clay and fossils and stuff all mixed together. I believe that we actually even pulled up a handful of oyster shells while we were there, right? Which is crazy because while we were mentioning proximity to the sea, we were up the side of a mountain like way far away when We were at 350 to 400 meters above sea level. Right. So that's, (laughs) and as a a long drive from the actual sandy beach. So, um, you know, in the middle of the vineyard, you could pull up something like, you know, a a fossilized oyster shell at the same time as you have some pretty dense clay and, and uh, even some, uh, well, in any case, there's, there's a lot going on is the point. Um, Then, why do we want these uh, these kinds of vessels that allow all of this breathing? Microoxygenation is a term that you hear thrown around a lot in wineries like this and by the wine. That's why I used it. They love it. They I love like it to so use, I like to learn a new word and then use it in a sentence. <laughs> That's a very very good practice, Katie. And uh, they they love it for a few reasons. One is. Um, Grapes like Galliopo are known for being really tannic, right? So they're tough. They're not, they're, you know, you hear, speaking of words that we throw around a lot, I, I talk about wines as friendly or accessible versus more severe or austere or et cetera. The uh, Galliopo grape has the ability to be incredibly expressive and really nuanced and actually really delicate in a lot of ways. Um, one of the notes that you'll get on it a lot of times is the rose petals that's um, familiar to people who drink Barolo made with Nebbiolo, another tannic grape, but that has this kind of incredible delicate florality to it. But then uh, that tannic, that that uh, harsh tannic uh, element to it makes it hard to get at that sometimes. So Um, these huge vessels, first of all, allow for a lot more movement of the wine in general. And they're, um, 
the terracotta breathability of it means that the wine is just really interacting with the air, but also the uh, the soil around it mm-hmm. or the, whatever it's packed in. And it was so um, interesting that when they originally interred the vessels, the earth that was literally like the natural earth of San Nicola del Alto that they dug under the floor mm-hmm. to get wasn't allowing that exchange of oxygen. So they had to dig it out, like <laughs> excavate it, replace it with soil that had a little bit more sort of, I guess, drainage potential yeah. and then rebury. Yeah, which I, I was containers. like, I was so tired and jet lagged when we were going through these things when they would tell me about all the work they had to do I would just get even more stressed out and tired like hearing them talk (laughs) about that so jet lag is real yeah it was not it was a rough one no amount of maritotso can prepare you for that and then we didn't eat anything except for those meat sticks, which are basically like meatballs that were that were rolled into a cigar shape. Yeah. And I ate most of one. I and did. you had a little bite and then I, I snatched it away from I you. Couldn't, no. That's my meat stick, That's, Danielle. I did, I did not fight you for the meat stick. I was I was in that space of tiredness where no amount of meat stick could save me. Oh my goodness. Well, um, instead I just drank a bunch of wine, so that was really good. That was really fun. We went to dinner later. We'll we'll go back to that topic in a second, but uh, we had this really, really interesting sort of crash course in the wines of Minot at the roadside cantina yeah. slash mountain backyard. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And during that time, a few very elderly men sort of lumbered past, including like an, an elder Milanese man that Nicola brought with him. Yeah, he imported a grandfather type with him to his mm-hmm. town. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so this guy like rolls in, he's wearing, you know, like a full tuta situation or like a really funny, uh, really funny track pants with like yeah. a sweatshirt. He was adorable. And he comes in and he's like, I expect him to be speaking in dialect, right? Cause, For sure, yeah. Because, you know, yes. whenever you go to Calabria, especially when I'm doing research and stuff, like if I'm planning on interviewing people, I don't always encounter people who speak Italian. I sometimes find people who can understand Italian, but only speak dialect, so need a translator. Instead, this guy walks in with like a Milanese accent. We're like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> And Nicole was like, oh, like when I told him I was moving down here, I was like, fresh air, close to the sea, near the mountains, not many people around, uh, only dudes in the town that you can talk to yeah, and like, like <laughs> shoot the shit with. And the guy moved. Yeah, it was The guy good. freaking moved. I know. He had on a fantastic outfit. And I do promise everyone listening that this um, unwieldy tale will be accompanied by incredible visuals that yeah. Katie Harlow captured along the way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, I also really loved meeting uh, the very first customer of Minot Wines. I yes. think his name was like Raffaele. And... He was probably like deep into his 90s. Definitely. And uh, so Minot, uh, if you're in, you know, in New York where it's distributed and actually many other states where Amunini distributes, um, it doesn't cost a euro a liter anymore. Yeah, I know, unfortunately. (laughs) But but I think it's also like there's a great value in it because it's such, you know, there's such expressive wines. They're so interesting. They're so delicious. But... If you are a retiree living in San Nicola uh, del Alto and have been supporting Minot from the beginning, then your rate is still a euro yeah. a liter. <laughs> so I don't know if we were allowed to disclose that, but I mean, I don't, I don't think, think we I have think a Nicole's lot of. Gonna be mad now. Yeah, I don't think we have a lot of elderly listeners from uh, the, <laughs> the, the the Albanian exactly. descended towns of, right. of Central Calabria. Yeah, yeah, I know. If we keep working, Katie, <laughs> hustle though. Oh yeah. Uh, well. We 
got to not only meet all these people and hear about the process, we got to taste through all the wines, which really were magnificent. And speaking of being exhausted, nothing wakes you up like great wine. I was very (laughs) excited. Just wait Uh, till you turn 40. Yeah. (laughs) I got it. It's coming. It's coming. Um, I... I really enjoyed talking with Nicola because he also uh, did something that you never get anymore from winemakers, no matter where we go to um, visit them, which is was completely transparent about how how much of a struggle it is for him to find out things in the moment as he's doing right he's learning he's learning as he goes along and he's not uh, he's not totally new at this he's not without experience he's not going in with rose colored glasses he knew it's he knew it was going to be a lot of work he knew what he was getting into he has good knowledge about the winemaking process he's incredibly well versed in biodynamics and makes decisions within and outside of that structure according to his experience and to the responses he wants to give to the product he has in front of him. But he also, you know, told us about how some things didn't work the way he wanted them to and how he's concerned about X, Y, and Z in this vintage and how he sees successes that he had in the past and how he, you know, failed in some ways to recreate those things and now will return to them. And it reminded me of uh, my friend Pietro at Prima Materia in California, and we'll talk about his wines in another episode coming soon. Um, who, you know, really has been transparent about what it means to work with a, with a product that is alive. And, you know, everybody says that that's a lip service thing that you hear from winemakers and big wineries all the time. But this was, you know, coming from someone who's saying everything is changing all the time and I got to be here ready to pivot, you know, <laughs> and yep. uh, and his wine spoke to that and they're great, but they're different all the time. And, and he told us, you know, this was where things went a little bit off track for me and here's where things really came together and we got to experience that. Yeah. No, I think it's going to be really exciting to sort of follow along as Minot grows and changes. Now, they have planted some new vines um, and done uh, some grafting, but also some direct plantings, which is pretty cool. But they're also working with 100-year-old Galliopo vines uh, that Michele's grandfather uh, worked and would not have planted himself, but uh, acquired and then produced grapes from for decades. So there's a lot of uh, deep root structure there, a lot of really expressive fruit, uh, maybe not the most productive plants, but ones that create pretty concentrated uh, grapes and really lovely wines. Even, even better in theory for that reason. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And the Galliopo is growing just at like the base of San Nicola dell'Alto. So we're at about like 350 to 450 meters above sea level. They also have Greco Ionico, which is growing at the base of the Sila. So another 300 or so meters above sea level. And they've, um, I think they've planted rather than acquired insolia along the sea. So at like zero meters above sea level, <laughs> roughly, maybe max 10. I'm super excited for that because you know I love a briny wine. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, I love a briny wine too. Yeah. <laughs> so delicious. So um, I highly recommend something that on our road trip we got to experience a little bit of which is like not planning everything, right? Yeah. I've been getting a lot of DMs and emails uh, from some of you and others saying like, I have 10 days, I want to explore Calabria, or I have 10 days, I want to do you know three regions, um, and I want to plan everything. And I am someone who is not does not follow this advice. I try to plan everything. I try to know exactly which you know place I'm getting coffee, my second coffee, my third coffee. <laughs> All Every experience is mapped out. 
I'm trying to loosen up on that a little bit because the absence of travel during this time has made me really miss the adventures and like the wildness and the unpredictability of travel. I've been kind of reminiscing about the days before smartphones when you would have a guidebook and uh, follow the advice in in a guidebook for like a region that had six listings for like literally the whole entire region. You'd end up in like the sketchiest place (laughs) and it would feel really weird and disorienting. And I really miss that. Like I don't want to, you know, of course I want to like go to Calabria and eat like Pizzo Calabrese, uh, mm-hmm. or rather Tartufo Calabrese in mm-hmm. pizza and like go to the best place. But then I also just want to like get lost, go into the mountains, find yeah. something cool. Uh, actually, one of the one of the most impromptu things and one of my favorite memories of Calabria is we're heading down the coastal road. We're nearly at Minot. We're also like so hungry. It's just before lunch. We think we're getting lunch. We're just getting meat sticks. <laughs> it's true. A lot of wine and meat sticks is the only thing in our future. Yeah. A lot of wine and meat sticks. So uh, we are, you know, just nearly at the turnoff from Chido to go up into the mountains. And who waves us over to the side of the road? The Carabinieri. Our good friends, alas, because guess what? Katie and I, despite our charm, good looks, and youth, get pulled over all the time in Italy. <laughs> this was my fifth time getting pulled over this year. Um, and, you know, it's not because I was committing any infraction, probably, but it was... Uh, a routine check. So they pull us over and it's like partially just to like check documents, make sure everything's in order and partially just to like flirt and keep us like a little bit too long uh, for like professional and appropriate behavior. (laughs) So I'm kind of like, I don't know, I get like a little nervous. I don't love hanging with Carabinieri that much. So when they're checking documents, I'm just like, what, what did I say that was like, um, I don't know. I said I said something like, hey, are there any like cool old people that do stuff here? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, uh, there's a man three feet behind you. And there's this guy like who was literally next to me yeah, sitting in the shade strange. with a uh, uh, Ginestra stock. So Ginestra, which especially a month ago was like fully in bloom. Yeah. It looks like these it looks like big fat chives with yeah. like yellow flowers. Yeah. Um, but they're really stiff bristles. Um, Spanish broom in English, Ginestra in Italian. And you kind of strip them down and then you can use them to tie up vines. So rather than using um, any of those like uh, zip ties uh, that are so common or any type of other method of tying up uh, vines, people used to use Ginestra. This guy still does. Yeah. Um, and And I was like, oh my God, what is wrong with my brain? That man was literally on my lap and I did not even (laughs) notice him. And like, oh yeah, this guy's like 93. He, if you get him, if you get him started, he'll tell you how um, Italy's really gone downhill since 1943. That's when Mussolini was deposed. Yeah, we, we then had to make the choice between getting started with them about our position on fascism uh, versus getting our passports back. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, fun fact about Italy, uh, everyone starts talking to you about fascism as soon as they can. Well, as though in you're Calabria. On, well, <laughs> in other parts too, let's yeah. face it. Um, uh, the, it's, kind of, it's kind of the way that people talk about Trump, just assuming that you're like not on board. Yeah. People here instead are like, fascism, cool, right? <laughs> and you're like, not on board. No, abort, it's, abort. Yeah, it's kind of a tough one. It's really, it's a, a special, <laughs> maybe I'm just a magnet, but in my travels, that's, that's a, <laughs> That's been the case 
pretty frequently. It does It does seem like we need to dedicate a separate episode to that whole situation. Yeah, how to diffuse a conversation uh, like, when you're actually trapped and trying to get your documents back yeah. but don't want to uh, talk about the Duce. Yeah, exactly. So we were released finally. Yeah. Then we were off. We were off. We made it through our amazing experience at Minot. Made it through. That sounds like it was a punishment. <laughs> it certainly wasn't. We um, enjoyed the incredible company and guidance of Nicola and then met uh, Michele and continued to enjoy some of their amazing homemade salami and uh, and several other products that they were working on, either for their own pleasure around their um, farm and uh, and the various facilities that they're that they're using there, um, or things that they're experimenting with to eventually work on in larger scale. And then, of course, we were invited to enjoy a lengthy and um, truly spectacular meal altogether. At which point I began to fall into a coma and Katie had to lift my lifeless body away from the the dinner table and uh, off to our hotel because guess what? This was only the beginning. <laughs> That's right. We will delve into our Sicily voyage in another episode, but... I just want to give you like a little roundup of what we were fed at this place. All right, let's let's cap it off with a uh, FOMO uh, <laughs> session for all of our listeners about what we ate after we got to experience some of the most exciting wines we've tasted in some time. It won't surprise you to know that there were potatoes because Calabria is a potato positive place. Pipie patate. See. Si. Okay, so. Um, First of all, the place was called La Gust, Laboratorio del Gusto. It's in Ciro Marina. Lovely space, actually. Lovely. Really, yeah, wonderful people. Service was great. Actually, just a great meal in general, not not just for the reasons that Katie's about to tell you. Yeah, and they had a whole wall of local producers um, of delicious Ciro uh, dock wines, and then also a wall of, like, other cool winemakers from yeah, Italy yeah. and France. Uh, yeah, and beyond, which is say, really saying something because as our listeners have heard us say many times, even within very well-developed areas of of rich regions of Italy, it can be hard to find wines of quality from anywhere outside of the immediate surrounding region. And uh, I, I will say, even though I hate to add fuel to Katie's fire, Tuscany is the first place that... Uh, <laughs> That's guilty of that. No shuddering. There is no shuddering in podcasts. Okay, fine. <laughs> um, is there talk of sardella in podcasts? There's very much talk of sardella because you know that it is so, oh my God, I love it so much. I would I travel, I would do the trip that we did just for that bite every single time. You kind of have to, although you can find sardella jarred it's in... Not, not the same. It's not the not same, the right? Same, not the same. So what is sardella? It is newborn anchovies, basically, like yeah. white bait or newborn sardines, basically yeah. those like little uh, white pre-fish. Yeah, they're like slivery little guys. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't uh, make it sound good when you no, say that. And white no. bait is a terrible name, so I always just say... Yeah. Just eat it and newborn, don't. newborn yeah. anchovies, yeah. Uh, chili, paprika, all yeah. like sort of fermented and tangy and delicious, drenched in local olive oil. Calabria is possibly the number one producer of olive oil by volume in Italy, and some there's some really good stuff there. Yes, definitely. we also had polpo con le patate, yes. obviously octopus with potatoes. This was followed by 
uh, peppers and eggplants that had been absolutely hammered in a pan until they were soft and creamy. Um, Cod with potatoes, obvs. Cod with peppers, actually, and potatoes. And then... Well, oh, salami, salami, salami. Cheese, cheese, cheese. Cheese, cheese, also. cheese, yeah. cheese, more <laughs> cheese. And uh, spaghetti with sea urchin. So yeah. two two of the items that we have mentioned are illegal to make <laughs> uh, during the season, but that's fine. Um, there were there was other pasta, and it's too. not the po- yeah, so it's not the potato. Is that, no, <laughs> it's not the potato dishes. Know. Spoiler alert: It's not the potatoes. Uh, I will say that. Their Calabrians do magical things with potatoes and peppers. And I pork. Mean, They're just yeah. like ma- magicians. Tra- yeah. Magicians. I, we we had that. We had a ton of really excellent wine. It was a beautiful symphony, actually, in that case, because Nicola was opening their bottles against other producers that he likes and respects and follows. So we got to have exactly the kind of narrative experience that, you know, I really love when we're tasting wine because you can watch someone's thought process unfold and have the gustatory um, uh, component or complement to that. And uh, I I have to say that given that I had slept, I would, you know. Over 40 minutes a, in the car. Yeah, I had slept. I had taken a, a solid 40-minute nap. I had slept probably four hours the night before and then maybe a few hours on the plane the, the preceding night. So all in all, call it, you know, uh, abundantly six to eight hours of sleep in three days. I still remember that meal and I still remember a lot of the wine that we tasted, which is uh, impressive under any circumstances, but certainly then it was a phenomenal, a phenomenal experience. And we both learned so much, which is why we were so excited to bring it back to, to share with our listeners. Absolutely. And we hope that when you feel safe to travel, you'll hit up Calabria, you'll plan a little, you'll leave caution to the wind a little. And in the meantime, if you happen to be in at least the American market, look for Minot Wines on a wine list near you. If you're in the biz, hit up John of Amonini Vini and get that on your list, man. Do it. Yeah. And look out for, you know, if these kinds of wines aren't around, tell the person you trust to buy your wine or to help you find it at the shop or to bring it in for you, that these are things that you're interested in and ask them if they have something similar or if they could make a relationship like that. What Katie and I are always doing here is telling you about an example. We're not promoting Minot because we want you just to buy their wine. We want you to enjoy wines that are of the place that bring this long history with them, that have this cultural construct behind them, and that speak to you through these people and these places. So uh, if it's not Minot, it could be another expression of a great wine that does all of these things in a different way. And that as a result could be something even more exciting because you put it in dialogue once again with the things that we're talking about, making it a richer conversation. Absolutely. So on that note, thanks for listening. Don't forget to support us on patreon.com backslash golapod. We love our supporters and hope you become one too by visiting patreon.com backslash golapod. And now is the special shout out time for those who support us at the Gyakti level. So thanks so much to Gabe Del Virginia of New York City and our buddies, Allison and Gino Ruggiero 
of Fiorella in Rochester. We also have our wonderful friend Leah at Semolino Artisanal Pasta in Pasadena, California, and Bobby Mazzullo at Mazzullo Pizzeria in Sacramento. Join us for more content, early access, special discounts, and news of everything Gola in advance on patreon.com backslash Golapod.